Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome to 101 Part-Time Jobs. This time I speak to AJJ from Phoenix, Arizona. I speak to Sean Burnett and Ben Gallaty about how they started as a two-piece. They were working in the coffee shop together and when they started, we go into that and how they've managed to to keep it up over 15 years. I remember discovering them with a split CD and thinking like, what is this band name? This is this is outrageous. What is this band name supposed to be? And the music was, was pretty similar, I gotta say. Um, and they've continued to be that kind of off kilter band. And, and, and to me, they've always remained really interesting. And it was great to chat to them about their real lives alongside of that. To quote one of their tweets the other day, the state should aspire to non-violence and reallocating police budgets back into the homeless services, community mental health, healthcare, food banks, etc., are what people mean when they say defund the police. I think that was a really nice tweet and I just wanted to say that on here because I think it I think it I think it means a lot. AJJ's new record Good Luck Everybody is out now and they self-produced it and that's where we start about self-producing records. Cheers for listening. You must have uh, been recording, you know, le- learning to record and demoing for, you know, the last 15 years. Yeah, definitely. Even uh yeah, like when I was also even further back when uh, you know, first started playing like high school band um you know, we had a cheap version of Cubase and my buddy had a computer that could run it. I don't even remember how we got the inputs into the computer. He had some kind of special sound card, um, you know, and we, it, I, uh, yeah, I guarantee it sounds awful going back to listen to it. And I, I choose not to. There's so much about those recordings that uh, I don't love. But, uh, you know, just diving in. And even later than that, like we found this uh, equipment in my attic, my my stepdad is a musician and he had like a little reel to reel setup that was I just found in the attic. I'm like, what the hell is this doing up here? So we like snuck it out of the attic and over to my friend's house and set that up and just figured it out. You know, we had eight channels, eight tracks to work with and filled them all up and it actually sounded pretty good. So that was like my first initial uh, experiments with recording. And then, yeah, later on, Sean kind of picked up on the digital and like, I had such a bad experience with my first recording. Like I'd mentioned that Cubase, nothing would line up and it all sounded right. bad. But uh, Sean would, did a pretty good job of demonstrating how you could get good sounds out of pretty uh, inexpensive equipment. Did you teach yourself, Sean? Oh, I thank you, Ben. Um, kind of. I mean, uh, you learn from everywhere when you're, you know, when you're doing it on your own. Um, I, you know, when I was a, I've been recording... When I was a kid, I had a tape recorder that my mom would let me use, and I would like record myself uh, singing the Swamp Thing theme song and and piano stuff, and that was always really good sounding. Um, I loved cassette recorders, and then I I, I also had an experience with Cubase. Uh, Lauren Laplante had Cubase, and uh, mm-hmm. man, that thing that shit sucked. It was so yeah. much latency all the time, um, and uh, I yeah, that was that was very terrible i only i feel like i only started really getting good recordings or like you know decent recordings uh probably like around 2014 i think when i got my first like interface uh was that in was that when you were in uh like chicago or lansing yeah yeah oh and uh fucking around with tony's garage band i i would do that too i don't know Uh i guess yeah garage band was it was kind of a revelation because uh you know, it just it was really easy to make noise stuff and uh, and mess around with all those plugins. 
Because that's the thing, playing in bands, you 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 know, you start a band and you very quickly realize that recording a record, even like a EP, is just like terribly ostensibly expensive, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember my first experience in a recording studio with that band and like uh it was so nerve-wracking just seeing the clock tick by, you know, like just assuming like, okay, you know, we have like 20 minutes worth of material. What'll this take two hours to, you know, record it? This will be no problem at all. And then like we're in the studio and we're like two hours in and like the just the money, which is we had a very still small amount up, of money. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still setting up and trying to get the good sounds and like just doing one instrument at a time and like takes aren't going well. And like maybe we could have... Uh, learn the songs a little bit better. Also, like the engineer was pretty impatient with us because we were newbies. And yeah, it was actually a pretty uh, awful experience um, and a very expensive experience. And uh, yeah, it's I'm glad that now it's gotten to a point where I know uh, what I can get out of it. And when music is ready to be recorded. Also, nowadays, we have a the benefit of yeah this equipment that we have here we have a studio that we have access to that we can record stuff and so you know it's uh it's really great to not have to go in and have a whole production about it and put things on the calendar and you know start charging us by the hour the second we walk through the door are there any moments from the early days of andrew jackson jihad or ajj moments when you were recording that that really kind of stand out that you that you sometimes think about mm-hmm. now I definitely remember Knife Man a lot because there were so many different days that we recorded and we recorded different things on different days. Whereas like maybe uh, people who can eat people, um, you know, I remember going in, me and Sean, just kind of like busting out the basic tracks. And then a lot of the other stuff got recorded, I guess, when I wasn't there. But yeah, um Recording with Jalapaz, I do remember it just being comfortable environment. Um, we could, yeah, it just wasn't stressful like what I'd explained on my earlier experiences. Uh, just easygoing and things would just kind of come together. Yeah, no, it was great to have somebody who we trusted and was really easy to get along with the thing that you love, the thing that you feel most comfortable in life doing, you know, no small statement. And then you do it with someone, an engineer who you think, you know, might go well with, but it actually doesn't feel good. You know, it doesn't feel right. Have you had any, any of those moments? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think a good, I agree with you. A good engineer and a good producer is supposed to make you feel relaxed um, and at home when you're in the studio. And uh, I think like it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a, super nefarious experience or anything like that. But I think uh, recording with student engineers at the conservatory uh, in, in Phoenix, we like, I, I think we recorded a demo there. Um, <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, you're just working with a novice, you know, someone who's like nervous to work um, and uh, worried about their grades. That was, uh, <laughs> you know, so that wasn't like the best experience working with, Oh man, I wish I could remember the the person we worked with there. I would not share their name because I'm sure they're much better now. I realize I set you um, up to to chat shit on someone. <laughs> yeah, uh, our first, our very very first demo, uh, 
titled Holy Man, Holy War. <laughs> it's uh, recorded by this this French dude that hung out at the coffee shop that me and Ben worked at. And the thing that I remember the most from that is he uh, he kept asking me to smile when I sing. Um <laughs> So that the smile would go through and that, uh, and then he kept saying like to tune my guitar after every take. And, uh, when I didn't do it once he, he screamed at me, he yelled, that guitar is tuned like a horse's ass. Fantastic. He did say that. <laughs> so I guess, yeah. I guess I do have a couple of experiences. This is what, this is yeah, what I want to try dig. and get these, you know, these moments, <laughs> these funny little stories. That's, that's the stuff that you remember, you know, you take through life, those things, you know, and obviously you, you two have been doing it for, for a long, long time. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite, quite a large, a large pool of time to like sort of dive into at any one point. But I mean, I guess, you know, where, where you know, if you were speaking to a friend and, and that friend was like, you know, how do you do it? You know, what would you, what would you say to them? I would suggest to focus on making music that you enjoy making. <laughs> Number one, you know, you got to cover your bases in that sense. But when it comes to touring, um, you have to, I, I would suggest starting small. I think that it's often the case that folks will, you know, embark on a five week tour for their first tour, which is what we did. You know, we just figured if we're going to get out, might as well go all the way. You start connecting all these dots. You find yourself, you know, all the way up the coast and you got to get back. And um, and it's super hard because you aren't likely, you're probably not going to make much money and you're not, yeah, not, you're not going to make money from the music and you're also not going to make money from your job unless you can find, I don't know. There are some really nice, situations I've seen people in where they can work remotely and they actually can be productive and work a job while they're on tour. I mean, those are, that's one thing you could try to set up, but, um, what I mean, but what I mean by that question rather, sorry, it was not like how, not like advice to give other people, but like, how, how have you two done it? You know? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, well that's, yeah, we embarked on a really big tour. We had a, we were both working at this coffee shop. Um, and the owners of the coffee shop had somewhat checked out. They had a real, uh, yeah, like serious jobs at Intel. You know, they just owned it as like maybe just like a, a hobby sort of. So they didn't really necessarily like keep too much track of what was going on around there. And we were able to like, you know, take big bits of time off. You know, we could just take time off whenever we wanted to effectively and had our jobs waiting for us when we got back from whatever trip we went on. So that was really useful, and I think facilitated facilitated um, touring in the early days. What kind of what kind of years was that? So the band started in two thousand four. Um, I actually met Sean, got to know Sean when he started working at the Willow House, where I was already working, and then uh, that lasted through two thousand eight. I think was when the Willow House finally closed down, um, and then after that, that became a that became really challenging where it was this routine of, you know, getting a job and then booking a tour and letting the job know two weeks before the tour started that, you know, you had a tour coming up and oftentimes they would say, well, you can't leave and come back. So then you leave and then you come back and you find a new job. And so just like this cycle of uh, going to find a job, which I find is like just one of the worst 
experiences just going out and looking for jobs i really uh, dislike that process so yeah so it was hard for a little while there were you both on the same like wavelength because that because that like i mean maybe it doesn't seem like it because you've been doing it for so long but you know to find two people sort of you know adolescents uh you know making that decision to be to be like oh you know we'll, we'll ditch this job to go on tour that's still that's still that's that's a big decision you know it's easier to do it with two people than three people i don't know how i was able to how how ben was convinced into it um i i always enjoyed um well getting getting started you know 2004 to 2010 or whatever um actually yeah those those were the years i went to college so i was kind of like our our schedule was also a college schedule when we when we could go uh tour so you know you knew that you would have two weeks off uh, in the winter time you'd have like a month and a half off in the summertime you'd have a spring break that's like you know uh nine days from like leaving class to to jumping back into class so i feel like that school schedule also made it like uh possible i guess like having the like knowing that there would be that amount of time where like at least one obligation was cleared and uh i don't know for our jobs we was a it was tip jar job so i remember like i had a carla rossi bottle big wine bottle in in my uh room that i would like just kind of put tips here and there i would try to put something in it every night and that was kind of like what i saved up to go on tour with to to go lose money because i looked at it like kind of a, a vacation yeah you know just a very fun fun time yeah um, I think if, if it were any less fun or enjoyable, like I definitely wouldn't have kept going on tour with Ben um, for sure. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I think our, our, uh, that we like each other's company really helped. That's great. Um, and how were you booking those tours? Was it through friends of friends or were you a lot of cold calling? What was the vibe? MySpace. Um, MySpace <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, and a little bit of book your own, book your own fucking life.com. Yeah. Yeah, before my space uh, you know there's also um i was uh just reminded of chris carey the other day because he's a dj on kxci the local um community radio station oh yeah i hear but that guy sometimes yeah so this this guy in tucson i don't know if i've ever actually met him in person i know we talked on the phone in the early days so it's somehow i guess maybe we sent a cd down to um one of the venues in tucson but uh, yeah, this guy uh, liked our band and he helped us book like, yeah, the the club shows on our first tour and was like a cool, cool resource to have for that yeah. first tour. He kind of like that kind of was the skeleton of the tour and we kind of built off of that. And most of the shows that we built off of that fell through, you know, <laughs> so like, <laughs> but I remember, yeah, he booked probably... Uh, the Ventura show, I'm guessing. Uh, Burbati's Pan in Portland. Oh yeah, the Burbati's Pan show. Um, Lucky's um, Cigar Store in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, my favorite show was in Merced, California, <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with the Castanets and Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice. Oh yeah. It was like kind of like freak folk bands that were just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they were great. <laughs> and I suppose playing acoustic that kind of opened the opportunities 
to endless events, I suppose, right? Oh yeah, we oh, could play yeah. anywhere. We could play a tiny place. We could play a big place. We could play a like a you know hookah bar <laughs> outside. You know, plenty yeah, of shows where we just yeah. There was uh, I can think of two. Um, there was the one in Denver. So the show we were playing a warehouse spot, Rhinoceropolis in Denver. And before we actually played, the show had started, but the cops came and broke it up because there's too many kids and they were doing kid stuff. Um, so then like, yeah, we told everyone right before they dispersed, like we're going to play a park tomorrow morning, just be there. And then uh, we definitely played San Pedro uh, over on that cool park overlooking the ocean. And I mean, countless other outdoor shows throughout the years. But yeah, playing acoustic made it real easy, especially when we realized that like we could fit uh, ourselves, our instruments, some merch and a friend and an, an Astro van because it's just like, yeah, just such, such a small operation, you know, really easy to like get the tour off the ground. Right. And you mentioned earlier sending like a CDR, like burnt CD to to like a community radio DJ. And like, that's one thing that I read about and see a lot, see a lot in like, like rock docs or books and stuff is like, you know, that I guess like the replacements <laughs> like trouble boys was the last big band one that I read. And, and, and the whole like college radio thing was, was so huge. Was that sort of tailing off? Yeah. Just to clarify, um, Chris Carey is now a DJ for KXCI and maybe he was at the time too, but, uh, he was, he's also still, I think, involved somewhat in booking local venues. At the time, he was booking Plush, which is not a venue in Tucson anymore, but I know that he put us on a show in the early days. Um, Bob yeah, we didn't Log. Really, yeah, with Bob Log, local, local hero. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember if there was... We didn't have a lot of luck with like sending out CDs, honestly. like That was a rare instance of getting um, good, getting good feedback and getting something cool out of sending CDs around. Yeah. Sean, do you, re- I mean, maybe I'm miss, maybe I'm forgetting something, but um, I do remember in the early days just being like, well, we have to do something. And that was like, even probably before MySpace, um, or at least before we were like, I was involved in that. And before we turned it in such, into such a useful tool, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember a lot of, uh, it just felt like you had to send something out, so you'd send it out, and then for the and most these, part, you wouldn't. These people get a CD on it that says Andrew Jackson Jihad, and then they throw it in the trash. <laughs> I mean, I mean obviously, you changed the name for a reason, but what kind of conversations were you having about the name at that time? Can you remember? Uh, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people thought it was funny. Um, and then, and then, of course, everyone wants to know what it's about, and then you just have to be like you know, either make some shit up or just say like, Oh, it's meant to be open-ended. What do you think it's about? Sure. I always like mm-hmm. the turn, turn it around on them. Yeah. 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 Of course. <laughs> and we, we, I, again, like maybe it's a weird question to ask, but I just, I'm intrigued from like kind of like very niche perspective of like, you know, were, were you selling a lot of merch in those first sort of six years of being a band? Not in the first year of being a band, but like by the, you know, I think I'd say like a, a, a couple tours down the road when we like kind of really dialed it in and started making cool, cooler designs. I think we did. Um, you know, I think that was, I think we were probably making about as much in merch as we were at the door. Ben. Um, yeah. I, it's hard to recall, you know, cause like certainly the scale has changed. Um, but yeah, that was, 
that was certainly important. And we made, yeah, we, we made a point of having merch and we would often run out of merch. I feel like, yeah, I'm remembering back to the, uh, that tour we did with Dan can't maintain tour. Oh like, yeah. Stenciling, uh, stenciling shirts. Yeah. Stenciling shirts, uh, you know, finding spots last minute, you know, calling cold calling, uh, screen printers and asking if they can have a shirt done by tomorrow, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So, uh, definitely like, which I'm trying to remember when did can't maintain come out and was that 2009? Do you remember Sean? Yeah. I I think so. so yeah, but by that time we certainly merch became a really important element of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we just didn't really, I think the first tour we did, maybe, I don't even know if we had t-shirts. We just finished that CD. Um, I feel at some point, I mean, you just said then, like, you know, the scale has changed over time. And when that scale changes, like expectations change. And then, you know, so does your sort of business, business savviness. Um, can you, <laughs> like, were there moments where the tides really turned? Uh, ben has a degree in business. He's always been business savvy. Smart. He was my manager. Well, not before I got not before I got the degree. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> oh yeah. no! Even even when he was going to school for the degree, he was like he was a the manager at the coffee shop, so he would have to be like Sean, take out the trash, and then like <laughs> the, the that's all cream, I ever said. Yeah. The ice cream shop that we worked at after that, uh, and also made coffee at, it was like yeah, Sean, you got to clean these floors better, dude. <laughs> yeah, we we had such clean floors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was after the Willow House. That was a somewhat. I don't. I. Uh, yeah, I re- remember it as a somewhat dark time, just because like <laughs> I don't know. I had to go in and wear this out. Yeah, I mean, it's just a t-shirt, maybe a hat. I don't know, but like I'm just hanging out and you know, like like teenagers or younger like coming in telling me what to do. I mean, it's fine. I'm selling ice cream. It shouldn't be hurts your wrist <laughs> you're supposed to play bass and you can get a scoop ice cream with this like hard hard ice cream no no <laughs> i ate a lot of ice cream during the time what were you saying did, Giles? It, did it like pale right not to sound like a, i don't feel like that's maybe a crude question but... uh, no i mean yeah it's probably a, a small amount over minimum wage um is what i is what i recall it right. being you know i weaseled my way into like being like hey you know i can so I would count the drawer from the, there's like a pizza shop that was also part of the business. So like I would help with some of the, you know, count the deposit and just like try to do leverage some of what I learned in a, you know, business school, which is just so funny to like, I was just <laughs> after I'd graduated from a college, like the whole economy just like took a dump. And uh, so yeah, a year after I'd graduated with my business degree, um i'm like you know working i'm scooping ice cream basically so i mean i I guess in that way just as far as like maybe a certain expectation that i had and uh maybe not fully living up to that but it's cool thinking back on it is uh it was exactly what i needed at that point in time is to just kind of you know i it wasn't particularly busy so i spent a lot of time reading and uh eating ice cream. So, you know, I don't know what the fuck I'm complaining about. <laughs> I mean, speaking of expectations, expectations can be like a really powerful thing and it, it can kind of like, you know, kind of fuck with you, can't it? Or has there always kind of been like a thing like, 
well, you know, we'll try and do it. And if people dig it, then that's great. I mean, what's kind of been your sort of standing on that? Expectation management has been, a, I, I feel like, a core value of the band um, from the beginning. Because we, going back to like, you know, saving up tips to to go on tour and looking at it as more of a vacation, like anything beyond that has been extra credit to an extent. Mm. And uh, I don't know, even even nowadays with like... It's it's been a mantra in in our band and with our with the other members of the band now, uh, you know Preston and and Mark. We'll say, we'll try again next year, when something doesn't go well, <laughs> the show isn't attended, or uh, you know say your tour gets canceled because of a, a global pandemic. We're gonna try again next year. Oh man, pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've just been through a lot of uh, unexpected shit you know with this band um like i'm just trying to think of a few things there was one time on tour where we had to drive through the canadian rockies overnight to try to play a show in calgary um during this snowstorm i don't know it was a harrowing experience um (laughs) the next day we're on track we're gonna make it to the show everything's cool after a long night and then like you know, the road is closed because there was an avalanche, uh, you know, a few miles ahead. So we had to cancel the show anyways, you know, and we're stuck in this small uh, town in the Canadian Rockies. Um, And just like vans breaking down and so many (laughs) vans breaking down and just like being able to accept things and move on and like, yeah, forget about any kind of expectation, I think is a very valuable skill uh, the, if you're uh, gonna be in a band <clears throat> with that avalanche thing the the uh one of the openers on that on that tour called me and was like sean this isn't worth 150 dollars <laughs> <laughs> and then 150 canadian man it's <laughs> even less right i don't know well, that, that brings <laughs> that brings up like a, a like a valid point that like i've found myself and people around me all too often laughing about but it's fucking serious it's like you know you drive so far and spend 50 pounds petrol and then you get paid 50 pounds for the gig or, you know, whatever equivalent. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, uh, yeah, once again, depending on your expectations, it might be fucked up. No, I mean, yeah, it is. It is like, as far as the whole like numbers game. Yes, it is. It is fucked up. Hopefully the show is really good. <laughs> have you got a booking agent now? In the States, we have a booking agent. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, yeah, uh, Andrew from Specialist Subject is helping us with uh, booking overseas. And your your booking agent in in the states, what was that relationship like? Because obviously, you know, you're 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 pretty laid back to say the least. I mean, it's cool. We can uh, we can still be laid back now, and our our booking agent can be not laid back for us. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to, yeah. Nick, uh, Nick, he's also really busy with a lot of other bands that he works with. So it's not as if like. You know, he's breathing down our neck all the time. You know, we maybe we might make him wait a little bit longer than he'd like for certain things, but we understand that uh, decisions need to be made. And so it's a good relationship. And it's kind of up to you how much you tour, is it? Or is there an expectation there? Yeah. Yeah, it's up to us. Were there any times where you really thought like maybe a, a job had come up for one of you and and you thought, I don't know, you know, you know, balancing the band between between doing something at home. I was really afraid that I was going to lose Ben to Cox Cable around uh, 2000, <laughs> 2009. And then the, then the economy collapsed. 
What's what's Cox Cable? I, it's oh. a, a, a cable <laughs> internet company. Right. TV, cable TV and internet company. Um, there was, yeah, there was a point in time where I'd made an effort to get, uh, you know, a professional job. The one I was most excited about that didn't pan out was um, the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, which, uh, yeah, it was right after I graduated and on paper I was qualified for the job. And I mean, I don't know, it seemed like a really nice fit to be working at a big museum. It's a really cool place. I've been there since I, you know, I was a little bit bitter because they never even called me in for an interview or anything, but uh, that one I'd imagined could have been an issue, but fortunately um, they were not interested <laughs> and uh, get to do the band thing instead. You touched on it earlier Which is great. That, that like applying for a job can be the fucking worst thing in the world ever. I, I quite think, yes. think that's like funny when you, it's kind of a weird, maybe oxymoron is probably the wrong word, but like, you know, when you've spent all this time, like literally over 15 years crafting, being in a band and then going to a job that you sort of trying to like, you, you, you know, you make your application over like, you know, a foolhardy week, you know, 20, you know, every day kind of perfecting your application. I think that's like, that's such like a funny balance. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's gotten to the point now, I guess we're like, we're, you know, somewhat unemployable too, you know, just on paper. Like, I don't know how you'd communicate what we've done with this band in the last like, you know, 16 years of our lives. That would seem like it would have value to some employer. Do you, do you have it on your CV? I don't have, what's a CV? Like, um, <laughs> like a resume? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I just don't really have, no, I don't really have a resume. I don't, I haven't had use for a resume I don't know. The last time I wrote a resume was probably a decade ago. Last time I attempted to get that kind of a job. <laughs> I've had work since. I've, you know, found ways to make some uh, money. But uh, yeah, not not that route. Uh, I I also don't have a, a current resume. I, I can't remember when the last one I made was, but it was probably, it was probably less than a decade ago, I think. Um. I, uh, outside of the band, I, I, before I, before I became a working full-time musician, I was, uh, I was in social work, which is great because that, that job, uh, there, because there are a lot of on-call jobs there where you can, you know, work as much as you want, uh, as long as there's funding and then be like, okay, guys, I gotta go, uh, I gotta go on tour for a month. So I'm not going to be on the calendar. I can't fill in your shifts. Um, like on on call work, like filling in for people who who are calling in sick or going on vacation, and I uh, so I found a lot of good work in that. But um, I know a lot of punks that have done that over the years because yeah. the other thing is the is is like it's humanitarian, you know. Yeah, and punks are generally nice nicer people, I think. Uh, but I I do know that if I did have to get out of the band and I, and I wanted to try to spin my experience in this band into some other kind of work. You know, I could probably you could Ben and I could both both probably go into marketing, which uh, <laughs> sucks because that's like that's not a not a super tight job. But I bet we could I bet we could like sell some sell some cheeseburgers. <laughs> well, you must you must um, have had a lot of conversations between the two of you over the years of of how to you know how to spin something, how to market things effectively. Such a dirty word, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I've always had such a hard time with that. I I'm always really. Um, yeah, I'm always happy to 
let somebody else that's excited about our band do that particular element, especially marketing oneself. It seems, uh, yeah, I don't know. It kind of, but what if they do a shitty job? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, then that would suck. I mean, that, that would be unfortunate, but, uh, just the idea of marketing oneself, just getting out there and trying to convince everyone how great you are. I, I, I don't know. That makes me uneasy a little bit. That's just a personal thing though. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention as far as like, you know, uh, the last 10 years and, uh, like the last job job that I had, uh, I took some time to figure it out, but I knew a few other folks that, uh, were musicians and teachers, you know, when you're a teacher, you can take the summers off, but more specifically, um, a substitute teacher. So it was on my, I think it was my 25th birthday. I went and like, just like, I need to do something. I need to like establish a thing that I can do that can help accommodate my touring. So I went and like filled out the form and did the stuff to be a certified substitute teacher in the state of Arizona. So that was a thing that I did for several years where I would kind of, you know, let them know that I'm unavailable for stretches of time. And then when I got back in town, I would be like, Hey, I'm available again. So that was a, a job that worked well with a touring touring schedule. And, uh, so yeah, I think it's been a couple of years since I did that last, but yeah, that, that was, I don't know, probably spent a good amount of time, different schools uh, doing that, which is nice. Sean, you said that you're a full-time musician now, presumably you're, you're both full-time musicians. What year did that happen? And, and like, what was that transition like? And what were your kind of conversations like at the time? Can you, can you like remember that period of time specifically? Um, yeah, I, I became, I think I, I think it was, it was a big shift in identity because I, I went from, I, oh, okay. So I moved from Phoenix to Chicago to live with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Uh, and I was largely unemployed there except for, uh, doing some research, uh, what do you call it? Some survey research for a university there. And then uh, touring as well. Then I moved to Michigan, and uh, there I was. I I was also largely unemployed. Uh, and then I started volunteering for a youth outreach organization in the hopes that I could get a job working on call. But in uh, in the town I was living in, there wasn't enough of a need for like an on call employee, which is a, a good thing. Um, and then I. So I was just kind of bummed out, like, oh, no, I can't find any work. But I was, like, making enough money at that time as a touring musician and living cheaply uh, enough to that I was technically a professional musician, but I just didn't didn't recognize that yet. I, I you know, I had to kind of shift myself from uh, out-of-work social worker to employed musician. And uh, that's when I that's when I started to try to learn how to use my time more wisely which is, is a, an everyday practice. When you say trying to find ways to use your time more wisely, is that in terms of songwriting? Uh, songwriting and, and uh, playing, getting better at, uh, you know, getting better at uh, using your time. Yeah. Basically, getting better at, at making music uh, or finding ways to, to make money or to uh, make yourself useful as a musician when uh when there is downtime right 
it's hard it's hard to not have a busy brain sometimes right and focus on things i i have a hard time to focus i have a hard time focusing um me too yeah what about you ben around the same time um yeah see i I guess it just kind of all tapered off you know it was like i was always counting on a job for all of my income and then slowly over the matter of yeah fully 10 years i imagine it just like a little bit less a little bit less and right now i still do have like i'd mentioned like i try to like hustle up a few bucks some other ways i um it's actually nice i can work for my dad a little bit he's got a property that i can like just do stuff around there landscaping and things of that sort yeah but uh yeah um i don't remember a specific moment that was the nice thing about the substitute teaching is that i could recognize open windows of time and need you know i need some money so i could like kind of work that a little bit more but then all of a sudden it just got to a point where i was like finished uh, yeah so i moved to tucson you know and i didn't look for a new substitute teaching job right and i was like kind of doing it less and less when i was in phoenix you know i was just less and less necessary um so yeah it wasn't as yeah there was no hard line um it was just a nice smooth transition and you know i guess in a way it might kind of slip the other way a little bit in the near term just because um time is yeah the what my schedule has changed quite a bit we uh had a really busy year full of touring so that time commitment has gone away and also the uh you know the money we were going to make from from that work is uh gonna have to wait and so yeah uh, it was, it was good. It was good to kind of not have to be forced to make a quick, hard decision, you know, it just kind of happened naturally. And touring is work, right? Can you, is, is touring still, I mean, I, you know, I, the times that we see each other in person, you're on tour and you, you always seem in a, in a, in a good mood, both of you. Uh, so touring still must be, you know, fun, but it, you know, having something that's, there's a holiday and work at the same time, that's, that's, that's kind of like a funny, special thing. I, yeah. I, uh, one way that I like to see it is that uh, being a touring musician is the best job, but it has the worst commute because you just spend all of your time in vans and uh, in planes and things of that sort. Uh, playing music is the best. Um, it doesn't feel like work playing the music itself. But yeah, there are a lot of things that go into it. And a lot of uh, waiting around and a lot of planning. And when you're gone, you're fully gone. You know, you don't get to go home and sleep in your bed. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't think I would change. I, I don't think I would change it. I uh, I like it. I do. I like I like hard work. I think it is hard work and I, I enjoy that. It makes me feel like I've done something. Also, like, it, yeah, uh, as a quote-unquote full-time musician like full-time musicians should always uh always like keep an ear to the ground for like another hustle like ben doing yard work at his dad's um i sometimes uh have, you know work at a work at a record store in town and that's been pretty fun um selling uh selling artworks on etsy to fans of our band has been is, is also a, a cool little side hustle what what name can, uh, can people find you on etsy oh i'm not selling anything right now um but bon etsy 
<laughs> Great. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Uh, the last job that I had that I like, the last like hard job that I, that I um, worked before I like became a full, full-time musician. I remember cause we were listening to Christmas Island masters and uh, going, arguing over the, uh, the song sequence. But I, I had got like this two week, extremely, uh, extremely short term work uh, changing over apartments in a college town, East Lansing, Michigan. And it was our job. I was in a, I was in a crew and we had to go and replace everything that the, these college kids had broken in their apartments or their flats. Uh, and so like my first job was uh, scraping the caulk on the tubs and like recaulking them. And then uh, a couple days later, I got moved over to changing, like swapping out toilet seats. And uh, it was like I reached. So in, in America, it's a 40 hour work week. And then anything you work after that, you get paid uh, some kind of overtime pay. And I think it was time and a half. And like after like the by the fifth day of like two weeks straight is what it was supposed to be. I was already like making overtime, um, just swapping out toilet seats, working with these like assholes. Um <laughs> and uh listening to uh listening to Christmas Island trying to figure out what order the songs were supposed to go in but then by the like week and a half into it the job was done and uh they just sat us all in the back of a truck and like we're driving around the apartment complex waiting for like stuff that needed to get done and i was thinking about my time and about how i was like not having a good time and so i just asked the team leader i'm like hey man I'm going to fuck off. Is that cool? Like, yeah, sure. And I clocked out and I never went back. And that was like, that was the last like unpleasant job I worked. And that would have been 2014. I just wanted to throw that story out there before I, uh, forgot it. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working. Yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Thank you for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast. Next week, we've got Jamie from Aerial Salad. Looking forward to it. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.